Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. So in other words, the the models that I was using back in the 80s and 90s, they don't work anymore. And so then the question becomes, well, why is that the case? And that's because the fundamentals, I believe, have changed dramatically. I mean, you've got a bond market that's at all-time low yields uh, in the entire history of the the country. Um, And you can't expect um, the same results because of that. That's where I think that's where I was talking before about how you need to also have a qualitative uh, analysis of the whole uh, situation as opposed to just thinking, well, um, this is going to, trend following has worked in the past, it's going to work in the future, and that, that's it. It's, it's, it. It can work in the future. Um, I, I believe it will, because I think the trends will continue, but it doesn't mean you're going to get the same results as you, as you did 10, 20 years ago. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Although it'll be a happy day after St. Patty's Day once you're listening to this. Uh, I'm wearing my green for everyone regardless and have a little bit of the luck of the Irish with us today with not one but two great guests. Uh, Number one is one of the OGs of systematic trading model research and development, Robert Rotella, who is one of the early traders at Commodities Corp and founder of the cleverly named Rotella Capital Management. And number two, sorry, sorry, Robert. And number two is actually the new number one at Rotella with uh, CEO Jagdish Prakasam. Did I pronounce that right? Oh, that's perfect. I, that's... Uh, who we just called Jag when we talked to him. But uh, Jag joining us as well, who came up through the ranks at Rotella from researcher in 03 to its CEO today. So we're here to talk about what it was like back in the 80s and 90s, as well as what it might be like in the upcoming 30s and 40s with the advent of machine learning and AI and all that good stuff. So welcome, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for being here. Happy St. Patrick's Day. They um, do anything out in the Pacific Northwest or not as much as Chicago, I'm sure? Uh, no, I, I didn't notice anything in my area. No, and, not really. It's not like uh, Chicago downtown. I know how the river gets uh, dyed green or what have you. <laughs> Nothing much happening here. Yeah, and you both had spent time in Chicago, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, actually, it was a great experience in Chicago, and uh, we were in the, at that time named the Sears Tower, uh, I think the 91st or 92nd floor, and it was an interesting experience, as well as the Prudential Building, too. The us true Chicagoans still call it the Sears Tower, no matter what it's called, uh, right? right? It's technically, I guess, Willis Tower, but then they were talking about even renaming it something else. Yeah, it was quite a view from, from it was almost like being in a plane sometimes, and uh, some of the storms there. You were in the storm sometimes, and it was quite an interesting experience. And I've heard from people it'll actually sway 
yes, it can sway as much as my understanding, uh, easily uh, 12 inches. Uh, and uh, there were some people that actually had a lot of trouble with that on a very windy day. They, they just did not like being there. So, yeah, uh, I actually am comfortable with the sway, but some people, they prefer the rigidity, I suppose. Uh, that's like classic uh, Nassim Taleb stuff, right? Like you want it to be yeah. uh, not perfectly strong and to withstand anything, but yeah, anti-fragile, not strong. Right. Uh, and were you out of there before 9-11? Or were you in there uh, after 9-11? Thank God, yeah. I, more luck than anything, but uh, we got out of there, I think, in 99. Um, not exactly sure, but um, – and then um, – that was not the best place to be after that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the rest of uh, scary. Yeah. Um, and so Robert, tell us a little bit, you started out with commodities corp, which is well known for uh, a bunch of the hedge fund managers that have shot out of there. Um, how'd you get involved there and what was it like back then? Uh, I would say that, a very important aspect of uh, Commodities Corporation was Elaine Crocker. She was the president at the time. And she um, went on to become uh, president of uh, More Capital. Uh, but uh, at the time that she was at Commodities Corporation, she did a lot to, I think, uh, improve the, uh, the success of the company by hiring some very, very good traders. And um, she also ran the company very well uh, too. And I think she was an important part in helping me to succeed. Um, but if you want, I can start just a little bit back before that. Sure. Uh, yeah. Cause there was a lot of history there. And, um, uh, I, I started trading, I guess around 1980, uh, just getting out of college and, and, uh, virtually all my trades were losers. And, um, I was going off of fundamental trading, reading the paper and so on, and finding out that what you read in the, in the mainstream media wasn't necessarily going to get you rich very quickly. And so um, I started realizing that if I did the opposite of what I actually thought I should do, I actually might be more successful. But that's not an easy thing to do uh, psychologically. And so... Um, I went onto the floor of the New York Futures Exchange, I guess around 1984, and um, I was. Yeah, I'm what sorry. were they? New York Futures Exchange. I think that even predates my. Not, what were they trading there? Yeah, that was. It was called the Knife Future, and it was a future oh, yeah, on yeah. New York Stock Exchange. And okay. basically, it, it pretty much correlated with the S and P 500. Got it. So not the New York Board of Trade, sugar, cotton, and stuff, but That's the knife. Yeah. All right. right. I think I have traded knife way back when. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I found out that it was a really, really bad um, pit trader. And uh, so I realized that if I wanted to succeed, I'd have to do something else. And that was the beginning of the computer age, 1985. And where I think I was very fortunate is that I was able to, I realized there was a lot of, you have to understand people were trading like alpha quotron screens and um, basically just by the seat of their pants, looking at the data on the screen and then making a decision on how to trade. And what I started to do is because um, I had an engineering degree, I had programming skills and I started looking at the data and analyzing it 
and doing pattern recognition at that time. And so I was probably one of the first people to incorporate pattern recognition and but doing that on a systematic basis uh, using programming and doing statistical studies to um, try to develop trading systems. And then your engineering was from RPI? That's correct, yes. Right. Yeah, so I have I, to throw that out there because I went to Union College, so right, ah, right okay. across the river there. Um, Not far away. Uh-huh. Some, somewhat rivals, but in hockey yeah. and in... Hockey, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, in chemical engineering. Um, but I will say, and, and that mathematics helped me a lot, the programming there, but also the, the, the statistics course that I took uh, in my graduate degree at uh, getting an MBA, that helped as well. Um, understanding that uh, things are probabilistic, especially in the markets. So uh, I started programs and trading mechanically as opposed to on a discretionary basis. And lo and behold, I found out that uh, if you did things uh, without too much overfitting of the data, it actually might work. And um, so in 85, I went on my own uh, as a floor member uh, trading and then uh, so went to and then started trading the S&P 500 futures, bond futures and uh, went on from there. I was making like 100 percent a year, 1985. That's not bragging. I'm just saying that's the way the markets were moving at that time, 85, 86, 87, 88. Um, it was really uh, incredible time in terms of trading, a lot of movement in the markets and a lot of clean directional movement as well. And then um, I guess it was in 89, I broke even, but I had a $50,000 account and I was making 100% a year in New York City after taxes, that doesn't get you anywhere. So 50,000. So basically I had to go get a job again and I became a clerk on the floor. And um, that's when I sent my resume to Commodities Corporation. And... um, Fortunately, they looked at it. They came and interviewed me at my house, and uh, or my apartment, should I say? I was going to say you weren't doing too bad if you had a house in New York. No, yeah, in, in Manhattan. No, not exactly. Uh, so, anyways, they they interviewed me and they decided to give me fifty thousand dollars, and um, because that's they felt was sufficient because that's what I was trading uh, in, my, in my personal account. Unfortunately, I had lost all my money. Uh, because I was breaking even and that went towards living expenses. Yeah. So I had to borrow uh, money from my parents who um, I was really happy that they supported me because my father was a school teacher and my mother a housewife. They didn't have a lot of money themselves. And so they lent me uh, uh, about 50,000 and uh, that kept me going. And that along with the, the allocation from Karate's Corp, um, I was very fortunate to be able to trade and uh, do well for them. Yeah. So a few things I one, I'm just interested when you first started saying, uh, I'm going to do this mechanically and statistically, there weren't any programs, right? Like you had to actually program yourself or there's some early things no, no, where you no. could run statistical analysis. You know, there might have been, but they weren't sufficient for my needs. And so right, I was they might've been a million dollars a year or something like yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and, as you probably know, when they have these programs that they try to be generic and work for everybody, but then you have specific needs and um, they weren't, they didn't meet the needs that I had. 
So you're correct. Um, I was doing programming in Pascal and in C. And uh, at first I started with uh, Excel spread or Lotus one, two, three spread spreadsheet, I suppose. But um, th then you found out pretty quickly that that didn't meet your needs. And um, so you needed something um, like a, a much more powerful programming language, yes. So yes, I did all the programming myself. Wow. And then secondly, I'm just thinking back, right, early 80s, John Henry, heyday, the turtle traders were making hey, Did you know of those guys and know of this systematic kind of trend following world? Or were you kind of approaching it independently on your own? Uh, I knew virtually nothing about it. And uh, just to give a little background, uh, as I mentioned, my father was a school, te I, school teacher. I came from a background of nobody ever worked for themselves. They all worked at a factory or they worked as a school teacher. That was it. That was the only option you have. Or, um, you know, maybe like at a clerk at a store or something to that effect. And so I had no buddy that could give me some kind of guidance in terms of um, uh, help in, in either starting a company or in trading. And, and all trading was to me was something like a brokerage firm. And that I, I had no idea that there was another aspect to it until I read uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by Edwin yeah. Lefebvre. And that was probably one of the most important books that I had read and where I found out that there were actually people that made a living trading the markets. and right. Stock was, operators. Yeah. Exactly, yes. And that was a, basically a book uh, probably many people don't know uh, uh, about Jesse Livermore, famous uh, stock trader in the 20s and 30s. It's been mentioned on this pod a few times as uh, people's favorite books. Yes. Um, and it, I read it long, long ago, but yeah, it's great. Yeah, that and Extraordinary Delusions of a uh, of Madness of Crowds uh, by, I think, McKay. That's a very good book, too, as well. It needs to be, uh, they should come out with the updated 2021 version and include yeah. crypto and, and NFTs now. <laughs> you realize things haven't changed. Yeah. Um, and then I want to come back and ask you some commodities corp questions, but let's bring in Jag and uh, Jag, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, so my background actually is, uh, at least education wise, it's similar to Robert as well. I, I have an engineering degree in chemical engineering and uh, I developed an interest in programming primarily to um, build some neural nets to apply to heat exchangers. And uh, that was my original thesis. I, you know, I, I wrote a paper on it and things like that. But in finance, I mean, in chemical engineering, one thing you realize is things move really slowly. I mean, if you can implement one algorithm in a decade, you've, you know, you're doing pretty well for yourself in some sense. And that was the state anyway then. So I, I implemented that. And then I realized I was looking to move to a place where I can... Uh, I can analyze more data and finance was a natural fit at the time. And I, you know, applied for a program in Chicago. I did my master's in financial engineering and uh, I, I started as a intern actually at Rotella Capital and really? analyst. Um, and since then I've been uh, trading a variety of different portfolios and, you know, futures as well as uh, equities and, um, 18 years later, under Robert's mentorship, I'm still here wow. <laughs> working alongside him and benefited from his uh, mentorship. And on that note, I should tell you, I don't know if Robert remembers this um, I, this story, but I got to tell you one of the early uh, 
uh, early days, I, you know, I was uh, trying to build a system and uh, until then I was supporting uh, the research rather than building my own systems. And somewhere around 05, I started building my own systems and I, I created this system the very first day I started building this, I suddenly saw a sharp of two sharp. And I was so excited, you couldn't believe it. I took a walk out, it was, you know, it was a beautiful day in Washington. I walked, took a walk out <laughs> and grabbed a cup of coffee and came back in just to think, I don't know what happened. I, the first day I, I hit it, you know? <laughs> and then, um, of course, Robert walked by and he came to my office and he got behind and said, oh, let me check if you have your slippage numbers right. Yeah. And, like <laughs> and he clicked that button into that and Boom. that model fell apart. It was so bad that I said, oh my God. You know, uh, I thought you were going to say he was going to come to you and be like, it's not bad, but we need a sharp of eight in order for no, this to no, be seven in real time. I'd be happy with one. one. <laughs> But I'm saying like the difference between the test and the reality is like, I need it way higher in order to end up at 0.7 or something. Yeah, it was, it was 18 months before I, after that, before I could come up with a, a tradable, you know, model. But, uh, but that was, uh, yeah, there are some good learning curves in this uh, business, especially when you go from a different industry into finance. Yeah. And why, any commonalities you think? Why both chemical engineers? So you're writing the formulas or what, what's special about chemical engineering, anything, or it's just your brains work similarly? I, I don't know. I, I think it could be just the, the training of an engineer itself. Probably, uh, you know, we look at a system and we look to optimize. Is there a more efficient way to, you know, capture these relationships? Uh, that could be it. I uh, like, for example, in the heat exchanger, why did I apply neural nets on the heat exchanger? Because um, what is a heat exchanger real quick? So it's, it's, it's uh, basically cools down liquids in a plant, you know, it tries to maintain a liquid in a certain temperature band uh, in any part of the, you know, petroleum petrochemical plant in this okay. case. And so what it was doing is they had, they would run these plants for, you know, 24 seven. So you always had a night shift as well. So the plant engineers would fall asleep or something would happen. They would typically miss controlling the temperature and there was a lot of energy wastage. Hmm. So it was a good sort of use case to apply and control it. Whenever the you know temperature went up, you kind of brought it down kind of thing. And, uh, and it gave you a good framework to get other inputs, environmental inputs as well. So in that sense, I, I don't know, maybe engineering is well tuned to trading a little bit because you see a lot of engineers who get into trading. Yeah. I, and, and chemical engineering, maybe because you're not just fiddling, like electrical engineering seems like you're fiddling and figuring it out. Chemical, you have to more create a theory and formulas in order to make it work, right? If anything, maybe mechanical engineering, because I, I actually equate the markets a lot to movement, like fluid dynamics, things to that effect. So, mm -hmm. um, but I suppose you could look at chemical processes as something, something akin to markets. But um, the bottom line is, is you're looking at movement, you're looking at momentum, and uh, you're trying to detect where the momentum is and whether it's going up or down. So um, yeah. there's some engineering ideas in that, I think. We used to have a partner out of, uh, I'm going to forget the name, but now outside of in Tennessee where they built the nuclear uh, weapons and his job, he was an engineer and his stochastic engineering. 
to test the groundwater for nuclear contamination, but you can't literally test all of it. So we had to come up with formulas and models for, you know, figuring out what the true level of contamination was. Uh-huh. And he, he became quite good at uh, helping us develop a bunch of models on the side as a side business. Um, and so Robert, when you, when he first came as an intern, were you like, this guy's going to be leading the company one day or was, um, or was what was the thought then? Do you want me out for this part of the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's almost like, uh, we, we tried to hire as many researchers as possible. And, uh, I actually had a lot of respect for Jagdish, uh, I really liked his humility, which I think is an exceptionally important attribute in uh, creating trading uh, models, as well as getting along with people. And so um, I can't say that I particularly uh, singled him out, but I, I definitely feel that he has um, he's, he has some very great character skills, which are which you realize there's more aspects to trading and running a business than just being a good trader. And that's one of the mistakes I made actually in my business is, is not understanding that uh, soon enough. Oh yeah. Well, the, the, this world's littered with great traders who are terrible businessmen. Right? Yes. Right. Um, and then Jag, same question in reverse. When you were sitting there getting hired as an intern, you're like, I'm going to run this place one day. You know, I, to be frank, at the time I was, uh, you know, this was a new space. I was, was you know, a, stepping stone. a kid in a candy store. I, I was absorbing everything. I didn't, I wasn't thinking ahead, you know, so much. Uh, but my goal then was, I was just fascinated by the markets. To be frank, I just was, I felt happy. I was given an opportunity to get a chance, you know, to even get into the field, you know, explore uh, models, modeling in the financial markets. Um, so I was actually grateful for that. That in itself sort of, it has an entrepreneurial nature. Um, you know, the markets give you an entrepreneurial nature way before the technology world ever gave it to you. And even even now I feel trading is the closest you can ever get to the bottom line, like in terms of PNL, you know, you, you kind of have a direct connection. You know exactly whether you're making money or you're not. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you have these tech companies and others who have thousands and thousands of employees. I doubt, I know they see stock appreciation, but I doubt each one of them, if you ask them, how do you directly contribute to the bottom line? It's very gray. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's nothing like finance. It's a brutal space, but it's very black and white. And uh, for data scientist types, they love the, as you said before, they love the quick turnaround, right? I don't have to wait months or years for my experiment to play out. I can, I can see it work out in near real time. Right. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say we started as day traders. So we had, a, a, uh, at least my trading was day trading. So it was the type of thing where you needed to make money rather quickly. Otherwise, you couldn't survive in a situation like that. So, yes, you, your results are pretty quickly, pretty quick. And so the Polaris program at Commodities Corp, that was day trading? Um, initially that's how it started out. Uh, that's because that's the way my trading was, um, again, the influence from the floor and so on and the psychology, it, it, it suited me quite well. It's very important to, to be able to suit your, your trading to your psychology. And so, um, we were doing the day trading and then, uh, once we were allocated more and more capital, we realized that that would be a problem, uh, in terms of just liquidity and being able yeah. to. Uh, allocate all that money so that's 
excuse me, that's when we started going from day trading to longer term trading. And then how much money were they running when you started? Like how much was 50 grand was what percent of their overall budget? My guess know? is that it was less than one tenth of 1%. I have, I honestly have no idea, but uh, yeah. they, so they, and were they doing this with hundreds of traders, thousands they, of traders? I, I can't, say how many they were doing it with, I, I simply don't know. But what I, I think it's, it's not so much the number of traders, I think they had significant allocations to larger, some larger traders, um, maybe someone like Lewis Bacon or Paul Tudor Jones, somebody like that. But yeah. I, I, I wouldn't really know the allocations myself. And did you cross paths with those, with those guys at all? No, um, I, uh, um, I'm sorry, I, I met Lewis one time uh, via Elaine, it was very uh, nice for her to do that. But otherwise, um, I really <laughs> haven't met that many other traders in the business. Ever? Oh, Ever. Wow. Yeah, and that's partly um, uh, my fault as opposed to uh, uh, I. So I was very, very excited about the business. And um, I'm probably going too quickly, but um, we started raising money. We were very successful, uh, very fortunate, I should say. And, um, but then life got, got in the way, shall we say. I had yeah. uh, got married, had three children, and I started realizing that there's, there's more to life than just trying to make money every day. And so um, that's when I started, shall we say, broadening my interests. This was in the decade of 2000. Yeah. And, um, after 9-11 and so just started changing and not getting so involved with the industry conferences and things to that effect becoming more shall we say introverted internal good for you right that's the it should be the goal right not to just knock bang your head into the wall day after day what's really important i think people have to know what they want in life like um i remember hearing about a, a pretty famous money manager I don't know, he's probably in his 80s and still he spends virtually every day of his life uh, trying to find the next best stock. And that's fine if he's happy, but you start realizing that there could be more to life than, and, and it's not to say that, look, you, you, you got to survive unquestionably. But what I didn't, I, I, I've always had other interests like art. I, I believe trading, we talked about programming and being able to um, analyze the market from a, uh, a mathematical level. But I also believe there's um, a subjective level, an artistic level, shall we say. And so I tried to apply both art and science to analyzing the markets. And so in the same way, I believed that I needed to also expand my mind, not just from a quantitative level, but from a qualitative level. And that meant uh, being involved in other things like traveling and, and so on. I, and I, I do love photography. It's, it's always been an important part of my life as well. Yeah, before we got on, you said that background is your own uh, photo, right? That's correct, yeah, yeah. And to that end, um, what I can tell you is, is that uh, I, I mentioned to you that I had gone broke, uh, I think it was 1990. Um, and again, it wasn't because I lost money, it was just because I broke even for the year. Uh, so anyways. Um, That's a podcast in and of itself, how to go broke breaking even. Yeah, 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 right, right. Uh, so, uh, and that's when I got the impetus to write my book because um, 
uh, I needed the money. I needed, uh, and I, I was, I think I was given like a thousand dollar advance or something. And that was a lot of money for, I mean, I needed that money pretty badly. And so I said, okay, I'll write a book for that. I didn't realize that it would take me two and a half years. It was blood <laughs> money. Uh, probably made about $5 an hour for that. But um, in any case, um, I still remember after I was given a lot more money uh, from Commodity Corp, this is probably 1994. Um, I was living in Singapore at the time. Uh, Commodity Corp wanted me in Singapore to train other traders. They, they wanted to um, duplicate the same kind of idea in Asia. And, um, uh, and so I went to Singapore and lived there for three years. But anyways, one of the allocators who originally visited me in York, um, uh, I, I talked to him and um, I said, uh, do you recall the first meeting we had when you allocated that $50,000 to me? And he said, I don't really remember much about it. I said, do you have any idea how desperate I was at that time? Because um, if I didn't get that money, I probably would be driving a taxi like Bruce Cover, but without the, uh, uh, you know, the, the allocation. I said, it was, I was in pretty desperate straits. And I was, what I wanted to find out was, did you sense that at all? from me and he said no the only thing I can re really remember about the entire interview is you had all these pictures you had taken on your wall and I really liked those pictures and <laughs> I, I felt that if anybody could take pictures like that they deserve a chance so the the, the, the point is is not to speak so highly of my work but uh, photography but the point is is that I, I think it's important to be focused but also to have other aspects to one's life and so what I can tell you is, is that I think the photography and the art has really helped me a lot in other aspects of my life, including the trade. Because a, lo a lot of this is pattern recognition. That's a great, right? Like here you thought you were impressing him with your trading skills and your experience and your knowledge and he threw the money at you because of the photo. Exactly. Right. You're like, right? Good yeah. lesson there. Always wear a good shirt or have good photos behind you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so how, at the peak, how much had Commodities Corp allocated to you? Um, I don't remember, um, but certainly, um, and it wasn't all Commodities Corp, but uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, we had uh, over 1 billion, I think it was like 1.2, maybe 1.3, but I, I don't know. At our peak AUM, we were 1.6 billion in. Oh, really? Okay. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. And just, right. And as a trader, does that ever like, most people know it's I'm doing 50 contracts. Now I'm doing 500, right? It doesn't really yeah. matter, but at some point it's got to get into your head of like, man, this, this, if I screw up this trade, this is a lot of money. Yeah. And you realize the responsibility you have for the people. And you know, for some people like a Bernie Madoff, he doesn't care. But for me, that responsibility was enormous and not to say that Bernie Madoff was a trader, but anyways, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that you have a responsibility to your customers. And that weighed on me a lot. And what I realized was that it went against my philosophy of what was most important to me. And one of the things that was most important to me was independence. And so what I thought is by raising all this money and making all this money, I become yeah, more this. and more independent. No, it's not the way it works. You actually yeah, become more uh, dependent for better or worse. Someone had a great, Right on Twitter, everyone was cheering Melvin Capital blowing up with the GameStop and whatnot. And someone piped up and was like, hey, just so you know, 90% of their assets most likely is 
pension funds and endowments and like sovereign wealth funds. Like it's not just, it's affecting some real life investments by. Exactly. um, That's exactly right. And so that, that really weighed heavily on me. And not only that, but I was probably one of the, I don't want to say few, but a lot of money managers don't really trade their own capital. I grew up trading my own capital, taking responsibility for that. And I really loved, I, you know, for me, I could lose millions of dollars of my own capital, not happily, but I could do that. But if I, if I lost a million dollars of somebody else's capital, that really bothered me far, far more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Where it was the opposite with a lot of other money managers. And so that's when I started focusing more and more on just being a, a proprietary trader as opposed to trying to raise outside money. Got it. We'll come back now to Rotella as a whole. And Jag, you can give us kind of the uh, the elevator pitch of of what Rotella looks like now. Yeah, uh, as as we just discussed, you know, Rotella has been a quant systematic uh, uh, you know outfit since uh, for the over thirty years now, and uh, we have evolved quite a bit in those 30 years in terms of technology, in terms of the types of models, and we can get into it um, in a few minutes here. Uh, and right now we have uh, six different strategies uh, across both um, you know, trend following, short-term momentum, as well as uh, volatility space. And we have a FinTech product, QDEC, which we can discuss briefly as well later on in the talk. Uh, and uh, between that, we are primarily based uh, out of Seattle, and uh, and uh, um, but we do have uh, you know employees spread over uh, Chicago, uh, UK. I just wanted so thirty years, and actually we have Roy Niederhofer on next week, which he's been at it for oh. around thirty years as well. But like that's th- probably have back to back weeks on the podcast, the two two of the longest track records out there, right? Like, yep. It's yeah. insane to me that you've been at it for 30 years. So are, what does the program look like now? Like the flagship program or there is no flagship there is a now flagship versus program. 30 years ago? Yeah, uh, Polaris is still our flagship program. Uh, and it's doing phenomenally well. The 2020, we outperformed the benchmark by over 20%. Wow. Uh, and but so what, how much of that is still the same as it was in 85? Like 5% or 80%? See, this is an actively is the managed DNA the same. Uh, right. So this is an actively managed portfolio. So what happens is the objectives that we are trying to capture in this portfolio remain the same. So the objective hasn't changed from what you know Robert wanted to do in the late '90s through mid 2000s through now. But uh, the models that have gone into it is uh, is an ensemble of a variety of models. Seventy percent of the risk is in machine learning models, and thirty percent is in technical models. And, uh, and we can get into the evolution of the program as well, but the objective itself has been consistent. Um, and yeah, as well, you we would, know, just from that answer that it's at least 70% different because there wasn't machine learning back then, right? Besides what was in Robert's yeah. brain. You know, what it is is see, we actually, as Robert also mentioned, he wrote the book on technical trading. So a lot of those, uh, we built on a lot of those indicators internally and built a lot of models in the technical analysis space. So what we did is, see, after post 
2008, what happened is there was a market structure change. There was a fundamental change in the market structure, which we picked up on earlier on. In 2011, 2012, we picked up on earlier on that there is a fundamental market change. Until then, our models were working in a vacuum on each market, one market at a time, right? The reason we were comfortable with that framework is that we assumed consistency in market structure across the wide variety of markets that we were trading. But then what happened is we brought in, we realized that the market structure has changed and we needed to explicitly capture those inputs as well. So we created machine learning frameworks that could actually enable information exchange between these markets on our technical indicators. So actually, it, 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 this is a very beautiful evolution of our research from technical to machine learning because it actually builds on all of the work that we had done in that space and captures uh, exchanges information between the markets and between the technical levels across these markets before it makes a trade on one market. So essentially, instead of making a trade on using just one market data, it actually gets information from other markets as well and then makes a trade on one. But the information that it uses is actually the technical indicators that we had built on. Uh, before. So it's, it's, the evolution of it is beautiful and uh, it's, it's very much an efficient framework to capture that information. And I can explain what that framework is, but I leave it to you. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to that. So I want to ask Robert, back in the early days, what were, could you give some examples of what some of those early models were? Were they like sure. simple volatility breakout, uh, contrarian, all of the above? Yeah, I, I think the easiest example could be a simple pattern recognition. Let's say the market is up three days in a row. What's the probability it'll be up the fourth day in a row? Or And and so there's two things you're always looking for. One is the percentage um, times it's up versus down. Uh, but hand in hand with that is the magnitude of the move. So for example, if it's up 60% of the time on the fourth day and down 40% of the time, it still may be a good trade to go short if the magnitude of the mood is 10 yeah exactly right yeah, yeah. okay and so ultimately that's what you're doing you're looking at percentage um in other words are you looking for non-randomness non-randomness essentially um do we have something that does better than 50 percent and if it does um the magnitude of those moves are important so it could be up like i said three days in a row could be um patterns like that but yeah volatility breakout systems as well and then just to tie it back to you, Jag, so now in the future, in the past maybe it was if S&P is up three days in a row, we have good confidence the fourth day's move is X magnitude and right. we're going to try and capture that. Now is it if bonds and crude oil and euro dollars are do something three days in a row, I think this is going to reflect in S&P? Sure. Those are the types of complex relationships that we want to capture because trend itself has become a little more complex to capture. That is our that is our feeling and that was our hypothesis and it's panned out that way. Uh, it's played out that way. So, you know, th there are two different frameworks that we built. One is a neural network framework and one is a, a random forest framework. And that I'm going to interrupt you real quick on that. The, um, and after 08, you're saying, was this direct result of, of the Fed printing and all this stuff of like the, the markets getting manipulated or was you saw correlations moved to one? What was the 08 catalyst to kind of 
switch Oh yeah, over. no, this was after the Fed influence. You know, it took us about two years to recognize that this was sort of a almost a semi-permanent market structure change. You know, if we, I mean, 2010, 2011. Yeah, you nailed I, that. It's definitely become permanent. Yeah, yeah it has become permanent. And, uh, and actually, Robert, I, I, you know, internally, I remember this. He, he came up with this thing saying he actually almost called the market in uh, 2009. I remember this when he said, you know, equities is going to be the place uh, to be in. Managed futures is probably going to have a difficult time for the next couple of years if this continues. And Thanks for the call, Robert. That's when I was going full throttle <laughs> into managed futures. <laughs> yes. He actually, you know, surprisingly enough, he actually wrote a letter to all our investors. It's out there. It was not something that we did a 2020 analysis and fitted this uh, viewpoint. He actually wrote a letter. Everyone has it who, who was an investor at the time. Uh, so, I, so anyhow, so that was... Uh, uh, that, but but we did, you know, we we had a curiosity on machine learning before it became. Now today, it's a fad a little bit when you use machine learning and ML yeah. and AI. But but you know, we're going back to two thousand five. We tested out uh, neural network based strategies to uh, alter the leverage uh, over uh, our technical models. Right? We uh, we actually have done a lot of research there, but we never found anything. Um, Convincing. So convincing uh, from a supervised learning standpoint, where supervised learning is in, there is a neural net is a good example of supervised learning, but an unsupervised learning would be a clustering technique, like k-means clustering. So those kind of techniques we used. We used a lot in the mid 2000s, but supervised supervised learning or the unsupervised unsupervised learning. learning like k-means clustering and things like that we used a lot of those kind of technologies in our analysis and portfolio construction uh, but uh, in terms of using the supervised learning like uh, neural nets we didn't find a whole lot of success primarily because it felt like uh, the amount of data was not enough so for those kind of powerful algorithms even 30 years of data is not big yeah. And it can memorize regimes very easily. So it had the huge risk of overfitting. And, and we were extremely uncomfortable at the time to roll it out um, on a live portfolio just for that reason. Uh, but quite recently, you know, especially past, when you've had like the 30 years was all bonds going up and rates going down and things like right. that. Right. So it's very easy for it to memorize. It's, it's an easy problem for it, right? And, uh, but, but in the past decade, we, uh, in the past five years, we found some incredible success in, in terms of uh, using neural nets as well as in terms of using you know, random forests to trade, incorporate, and reduce the risk of curve fitting, uh, the overfitting. And, and it's played out and out of sample. So far, so good. And Robert, did they have to twist your arm to move into this, or were you twisting <laughs> their arm? Uh, I've been leading the charge uh, I've, I've always been an advocate of um, using uh, technology. And uh, so uh, unless you disagree with that, Jagdish, I, I feel like I've been. Uh, no, no, you, uh, you were very much at the, I, ahead of the curve every time. He's actually pushed us surprisingly, <laughs> funnily enough, <laughs> you would think that we would have to convince him. On the contrary, there is an element of frustration every time he sees us like, you guys are not ahead enough. 
don't yeah. know. He's always saying, you haven't yet given me the prediction model, you know, or, or the forecasting model. Uh, we are, we have actually gotten to a point where we are able to predict persistence, but not real pure prediction. But Robert's still pushing us to get to the, you know, predictive modeling, especially in a low yield environment. That's going to be a big part of, you know, uh, what, what's going to be required here. And yeah, then and start out. Sorry, go ahead. No, to that end, Jeff, I, I think what's very, very important is that people understand that the landscape has changed dramatically. So in other words, the, the models that I was using back in the 80s and 90s, they don't work anymore. And so then the question becomes, well, why is that the case? And that's because the fundamentals, I believe, have changed dramatically. I mean, you've got a bond market that's at all-time low yields uh, in the entire history of the, of the country. Um, and you can't expect um, the same results because of that. And that's where I think, that's where I was talking before about how you need to also have a qualitative uh, analysis of the whole uh, situation as opposed to just thinking, well, um, this is going to, trend following has worked in the past, it's going to work in the future, and that, that's it. It's, it's, it. It can work in the future. Um, I, I believe it will, because I think the trends will continue, but it doesn't mean you're going to get the same results as you, as you did 10, 20 years ago. Right. They could be, which we've seen the last 10 years, they've been much choppier trends, right? They've been volatile trends. So you could look at a chart and, okay, crude oil went from here to here. It looked like a downtrend, but compared with the 80s, like you mentioned, it was much harder to trade. Right. Exactly. Um, and then if you fit it to these past 10 years, the next 10 aren't going to look anything like that. Right. Um, and I think also it's your asset classes. If you think about it, um, you had a lot more options uh, 10, 20 years ago in terms of being able to invest, say, in interest rates um, and, and uh, commodities and so on. But I think that's changing. And I think a lot of people are becoming very, very frightened about their allocation to interest rates. Um, and I think that's only going to continue in the future. So I think but you're you saying to, because of like globalization and because there's not really a difference between the currencies, it's all a play on the Fed or. Well, um, I guess all the my, above, my, everyone's easing. My, you, know, you know, there was a time when you could get five, even 10% on a T-bill. Okay? Yeah. And now when you're getting virtually 0% on a T-bill, when you're getting a few percent on notes and bonds, um, that's not going to solve your um, financial issues, especially pension funds and so right. on that have all these liabilities. So, um, and then I want to come back. So when you first started digging into this, was it more a way to, Hey, I've got all these ideas I want to research. We don't have the manpower, woman power, whatever, like let's get machine learning going so we can do all these ideas faster which is yeah. kind of these supervised learning and just like brute force methods of, hey, let's yeah. get this research done. That comes back to my, uh, my failure as a CEO in terms of running the business. Um, so I just thought, you know, I got all these ideas um, and you just hire people. And, and if these people have the same uh, interests that I have, that they're going to do this, uh, do some really great work. And the problem is if you're not managing that properly, <laughs> all it becomes is a chaotic uh, uh, environment and nothing gets accomplished. 
You didn't check their photo portfolio. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she said, all right, you can work on this project. First, let me see your photos. Exactly. Right. So that's where uh, Jagdish has been enormously helpful and uh, productive in um, not just on the research end, but also in managing the company. And so that's made a, a, a big difference in terms of, uh, I believe, um, hopefully being more successful going forward. Okay. So the, the bottom line is, is not only do you need to be able to understand the trading process, but you also need to manage that process as a business. It's a very different uh, skill set that's required. Yeah. Let's dig into the models a little bit, Jack. So we've got the Polaris is still there in the flagship. Yep. But you guys have launched some other strategies as well? Yeah, we have launched a couple of more. Uh, we have the short-term momentum as well, which also has a, a substantial amount of machine learning in it, uh, which has a track record from 06. And uh, we do have a couple of volatility strategies. And uh, and one of them uh, you're probably more familiar with, but I, I can get into it. But that also has primarily uses machine learning to uh, hedge uh, the equity beta. Um, so the short-term momentum, who's that designed for? It's like as a hedge or just as a pure absolute return? See, uh, with the managed future strategies, they have an absolute return mandate. Uh, but uh, they are uncorrelated to the, um, to the more medium to long-term traditional you know trend following returns that you expect they are meant to be uncorrelated to that so for example we use internally the sakchen cta index as a benchmark and uh, we look at that as from a correlation standpoint you know we don't mind if polaris is correlated to it but we would prefer that the short term index is uncorrelated to it but also i uh, just not uncorrelated but also uh better on yeah. an, on yeah. the upside so <laughs> That's important. Uh, so, so that's that has a dual mandate from that standpoint. And then, so back to Polaris. So its its roots and DNA would still be trend following. Is that fair to say? Like yes, it's, its roots and DNA is still trend following. It still has a, you know a, a spectrum of holding periods from twenty to sixty days. I and the framework itself, as I mentioned before, I previously you can think of these models as just single decision trees, and what uh, now uh, we have done is we have used random forest to bring it together. So a simple example would be, let's say we use 30 years of data and there are 200 trading days in each. So there are 6,000 days. And what we have done is we have subsetted that data into, this is an example, not exact parameters. Yeah, but yeah. I, you know, we have subsetted that data into chunks of 200 randomly. Okay. And then we take these decision trees and uh, fit it to these uh, random chunks of data. The beauty of that is you have a set of weak learners. So it's very difficult for any single uh, decision tree to memorize the whole data set, but they have this random pieces of data that uh, they have memorized, right? So essentially we are increasing the noise deliberately. We are not giving them an easier task. So what you have is a set of weak learners. So we don't trust any one of these decision trees, but together in an ensemble, we take an average of them 
and figure out are, is there a bullish sentiment or a bearish sentiment on the market? And then uh, we use a, a position sizer and we place the trade. So essentially what this does is it reduces the risk of overfitting. It, it kind of, it's very forgiving from that standpoint because of this multiple weak learner concept rather than trying to achieve the most optimized model you can ever get. And so each of those are making their own decision in terms of look back period and um, so things look like that? So we look at the whole universe of it. So we look at the whole universe of it. So let's take, for example, we had S&P, the 10 years and crude oil in the portfolio. It would do it for all across all of them. And then they would look at the influence of each one of those markets on the other. Okay. So it's not necessarily deciding parameters, but essentially throw it all in there and tell me whether I'm supposed to be short bonds or not. Right. So any kind of market structure change, uh, the way it is designed is it should be able to capture it. uh, And it would not be in a situation where you are watching that in real time after two to three years, and then you realize, okay, I got to go and change my model or replace it. So the framework that we have created is meant to adapt uh, on the market structure change. And this is more for medium to long-term basis, right? So the objective function is to capture trends in the medium to long-term space. So 20 to 60 days, but uh, in the short-term portfolio, in the short-term momentum portfolio, our objective function reduces quite dramatically. So it would be between five to 20 days is what we are looking to do well in or, or to see if, we should be bullish or bearish. And then are there any constraints on top of it of like, we don't want to have a long bias or we uh, yeah, there are no long bias or things like that? Right. So there is no explicit bias. Uh, so we are not uh, you know, tilting the portfolio one way or the other. Uh, we have an equal risk budget across all the four sectors. Uh, we don't want to add additional parameters. Uh, if, you know, I know some managers tilted it a little more to equities when, you know, that yeah. was their getting out of the, the managed future slump and things like that. But the problem with that, we know the problems with that in terms of, you know, uh, sudden market crashes and things like that. They don't land up providing you the diversification you're hoping for in the portfolio. But uh, in our case, we have tried to reduce actually the number of uh, parameters uh, by doing this, by keeping it, uh, giving it an equal risk budget. So there's no, ex- I mean, there's no explicit bias anywhere, but if it, if the trades from time to time, it could get long biased, but that's natural course of markets. Yeah. Just in my brain, right. If I had the perfect machine learning tool and I turned it on in 09, it would quickly learn like, okay, lengthen your term and have a long bias on equities. And then in theory, as things started to switch the other way, it would shorten my term and, take away that long bias from equities. Right. Yeah, those are some of the things that I, I'm actually pushing Jagdish to, to work in that area, uh, predictive type of work. And I think that um, there's a lot of things that can be gained by that. Um, but a lot of things that can go wrong as well. <laughs> unquestionably, yes, yeah. right, right, right. Because sometimes you get like inverse cycles, like you, you think you get, getting a top, but you're actually getting a bottom and so on. So, um, but that, this, that said, if you can find a turning point, that still can be very, very helpful in terms of the trading that you're, you're trying to do. And then it also always 
in my perfect world AI machine learning tool that it will it'll ping you and say you should be going long Toronto real estate or something right so there's like also a limit a natural limit to what the inputs are so in a in a perfect world the robots running it and looking at the whole universe of possible investments and and shooting something out but there's practical limits to that obviously well i i think um people see this massive universe of investments but i try to whittle it down to five or six at most and and to me all of these other offshoots are really derivatives of so for a very simple example when you have long short equity trading it looks great from an uh uh, a diversification standpoint versus being long the stock market. But a lot of things may be diversified in a bull market, but they become quite yeah. the opposite in a bear market. So the point I'm trying to make is, is that even though you have long short equity trading, to me, that's just a variation on going long stocks. Okay. And you'll get the non-correlation in a bull market, but you don't really need that non-correlation. In fact, there's, I don't always feel that correlation or non-correlation are that critical. It's more getting the market right than anything else, quite honestly. And that long, short, the last couple months have shown us like that's a very convergent trade as well, right? Like you're also betting on things remaining relatively stable. So right. even if the market doesn't go down, if there's a huge shift from momentum to value, you're getting taken out on a stretch. Well, that's one of the reasons why we're hoping that possibly momentum trading which is what I see something like Polaris or managed futures becoming more important in the investment landscape, simply because uh, unless you're expecting to, to make, you know, one tenth of 1% of 1% uh, basis points on your interest rate portfolio, yeah. um, there's got to be a, another way to do it. And um, should we enter a bear market equities? Um, there's not a lot of alternatives out there right now. So to me, momentum trading could be very promising. As yeah, well. I, I, I've said that here and elsewhere before, like your bonds were there. They're going to be a flight to safety. They still, even with negative rates, I think there'll be a flight to safety. So that's all still good with them. But what do you do in the meantime? So yeah, like, but, I'd rather have something that has a chance of making money in a, in a normal environment. And then that is most likely going to be there in the flight to safety kind of crisis period versus it bonds at these levels. You're almost guaranteeing you're going to lose money until the crisis period. Yeah, but, and let's not forget, you know, they, the bonds have been a flight to safety for 40 years. It doesn't mean that that'll yeah, always yeah. be the case. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the state that you're living in, I don't know if I want to buy Illinois bonds uh, as yeah. a, a, a flight to safety, so. Uh, um, yeah, I was, I was telling everyone, Biden's gonna get elected, they're gonna like forgive some of the Illinois debt. Um, that, that's a topic for another time, but we've seen some of that with this stimulus, right? They Gave money exactly. to the states. Right. We're, so we're holding out for like a all states debt reset because Illinois will make out way better than like Arizona or somebody. Or yeah, uh, California or something like that. But the bottom line is, is that um, that safety may not be there anymore. And so to me, that's another argument why momentum trading might be important going forward. And then let's touch real quick on the volatility programs. Um, yeah, so Sorry, go ahead. one of the things with, you know, the volatility programs is a natural fit with um, uh, with momentum trading uh, in some sense, because say, uh, 
a lot of people have invested in in classic trend following as a crisis alpha strategy, but there is so many different uh, sort of interpretations to uh, crisis alpha. And I, Jeff, I had a chance to see your interview with uh, Katie Kaminsky as well, where uh, where you were, you know, she was defining crisis alpha, and she was actually trying to clarify the point because many people yeah. think crisis alpha is exactly tied to the equity markets. Right. right. Tomorrow, if we're down 1%, where's my crisis yeah. alpha? Yeah. yeah, managed futures has to kind of diversify. And that's not really the, the, the case, right? And, but so what we, what we did is as part of our research, what we arrived at is also a pure direct hedge to the equity markets. Let's tie, get a direct hedge to equity markets. So we have a long only s and and VIX uh, futures strategy. And uh, essentially what it does is it plays off of the con- convexity between S&P and WIX. And what we are trying to do there is uh, there is a neural net uh, model that works to alter the hedge between the S&P and WIX. So it's not a predictive model in that sense, but all it does is it manages the amount of positions we need to hold in S- S&P futures as well as WIX and V stocks and Euro stocks. And so it's, it's at its base, it's like a long, long. So it's long the VIX and long the S&P as a head. Exactly. So you will yeah. never be long, uh, short WIX at any point. A lot of the wall traders in the past five years, as the markets were going up in a straight line, landed up trying to short WIX and got caught uh, on the other side of that trade. But uh, here is a strategy that we, we would never be going uh, short wicks. It's it's always long and long. It plays off of the convexity. So in calm markets, um, you know, we would need very little exposure to the wicks contracts, but have a lot more exposure to S and P. And at that point, if there is a market crash, uh, for example, in Feb twenty eighteen, yeah, you know, wicks went up three hundred percent. The market went down five percent. Uh, and you don't. Uh, there is considerable amount of uh, leeway for you to hedge that risk and actually provide a positive PNL. And the second challenge in that that we optimize for is to retain those gains. One is pay as little as possible for that insurance, but also retain those gains when that happens. Um, and as as we all know, that helps greatly in portfolios. Uh, especially in the compounding equation of portfolios, uh, you know. Yeah, and ha- how do you view like a April May of 2020 when VIX is at 60, right? So it's it's hard to implement that strategy, but that's where the AI comes in and says this right. is what the hedge ratio should be. Correct. So that is part of what it does is we try to lose as pay as little premium for this insurance as possible. So one of the disadvantages is that if you're stuck in a high VIX environment and the markets are going up, you know, you're going to be not as hedged as if the VIX was low and the markets were going up and then you had a crash, right? So, mm-hmm. so there is going to be that feature, but the, luckily for us, those phases don't last for extended periods of time. Uh, as well as uh, we try to reduce the premium that we pay for the VIX contracts as much as possible at that point. And why not, or do you do this? Is this part of Polaris and the other programs? No. So Polaris has its own. Why not? Because it seems like it fits the the MO, right? 
Right. So we do offer what we have done is uh, I we can get into it. I spoke about mass customization. So we are offering custom portfolios, which are multi-strats with Polaris as well as these wall products together. But we want to maintain uh, Polaris as is and the wall as is because the reason is, see, we have a long track record in all of these strategies. Yeah. And as an investor, I appreciate that. I'd rather have you be like different flavors that I can pick at the ice cream shop. The problem is if nobody's buying those flavors and you only have four, right? From a business standpoint, that's the issue. So some managers say, I'm going to put it all together in my best combo flavor. Another one, others say, no, we're sticking. You get to pick your flavor. Right. Well, a lot of these arise simply because I'm looking for something to help the portfolio that we're trading on a proprietary basis. So um, I see a need for it, or we do. And um, so that's how the strategy gets implemented. So, um, and if it works, then it probably has application in the outside world as well. But it's very, very important not to stray too far from the original strategy because customers don't want, uh, okay, the bottom line is, is you can do anything you want when you're right. But when you're wrong, that's when people start getting upset with what you're doing. And so um, if you have a product that, let's just say for say example, is short-term in nature, uh, I did it because (laughs) I was successful at it. I I went from short-term to long-term, but as a general rule, you want to avoid things like that because if it, if it doesn't go well, then people will start complaining. Well, why don't you just stay with the short-term aspect to it and so on. Definitely. And then is there any, um, then I'm going to ask about QDEC in a minute, but just on the portfolio level, and you mentioned like, okay, we needed this, so it's a new program. <laughs> is there anything that looks at, uh, hey, we need to add Bitcoin futures or Ethereum futures or things like that? And you have the overall that machine learning is looking at different opportunities and saying, add those to the portfolio. Yes, unquestionably. I'm happy for you to answer this as well, Jagdish. But uh, to me, that comes back to what are the major asset classes that we can invest in? And to me, interest rates are dead as far as I'm concerned in terms of a choice versus, say, 30, 40 years ago. Equities I'm becoming somewhat concerned about. Um, you've got commodities, which Jim Rogers talked about a lot, uh, essentially precious metals and so on. There's a lot of debate right now whether commodities really are a true um, inflation increase, uh, giving positive returns, okay, uh, yeah. as an asset class, like versus equities, okay? And that's, that's a topic for a whole other discussion. Yeah. Well, the uh, but, stats would say not really, right? Yeah, the yeah, stats so, over the last 30 years would say. Un, un, unquestionably, right. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's good reason for that from a practical standpoint. If commodities keep going up, then people can't use them anymore. So, uh, you know, something like corn or whatever. But, um, uh, but let's just say that maybe things like precious metals are a, a good uh, long-term positive carry uh, or positive return investment. Then you've got currencies, which basically – there's, you're, that's, that's another interest rate play, essentially, as far as I'm concerned. So then that leaves real estate and um, cryptocurrencies. And I'm hoping that cryptocurrencies are going to be a very, very important part of the landscape, landscape going forward. And then and how do you view that as, because they don't really fit in any asset class either. So is it just pure, it's the speculative asset class? So it's no, just a I, pure I, momentum and pattern recognition trade? 
medium of exchange currency. I view it as a digital currency, uh, just as valid. So you've got the fiat currencies, um, but now what we have are digital currencies and they're providing, uh, people question, well, what's the inherent value of, of a cryptocurrency? I, I think there's tr- there can be tremendous inherent values um, if used properly. We shall see. Um, so, for yeah, example, it, you know, to me, yeah. they're not really being used as exchange of value, but maybe as a store of value. So, more in like the precious metals bucket, to me. Yes, um, right. right. But that's partly because of of the um, the the demand right now is uh, the supply actually is not as great. Uh, in other words, there's a lot of people having more and more demand for that. Now, you can argue how much of that demand is speculative and how much of that is using it actually as a means of exchange. Um, that's hard to say, but um, clearly there's increasing demand to use it as a currency itself. All right, Jag, uh, QDEX. So the last piece of the business, you got all the models, you got the strategies, you shoved Robert to the side. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Respectfully, respectfully. You're the, after my job, Jeff. <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> uh, so tell us about QDEC and what you guys are doing in fintech. Yeah, you know, this is, um, you know, we looked at as we are, as Roberts pushed us to look for predictive work, do predictive work and capture trends as early as possible. Uh, we continuously keep an eye out, even on the business front to, you know, catch trends early. And there are a couple of things that's going on that we picked up about four to five years ago, where we saw that there is a a big, this is way before COVID. COVID, if anything, just accelerated uh, this model of adoption of fintech. But right before that itself, we could see that there was, you know, there is a trend of mass customization in the financial industry. And this actually originally started out one of the most successful ones is Starbucks. Starbucks did uh, was incredibly successful in rolling out mass customization. Otherwise, who would pay, you know, go to a coffee store and pay $5 for a cup of coffee, right? I mean, they figured out a model where they could sell it in mass and customize it and feel every client, you know. Yeah, and my, neither my wife or I drink coffee and we probably spend like, three, four, five thousand dollars a year there or something just on exactly. The so you, you see, yeah. Right. So that and and you see that trend across the space today, right? In uh, in retail, in in uh, sneakers, for example, you can go on a new balance website and pick uh, uh, you know, you can customize your shoe. Yeah. I mean yeah. who knew you could customize your sneaker, right? I mean mm-hmm. I I'm not the most artistic guy, so I don't, but I have seen people do that and I said, oh wow, you could do that, right? And this is a big trend. And, and what we noticed is there are a couple of things. Uh, one is we figured that if you see the wirehouses itself, the wirehouses, their market share has gone down from 42% down to about 34% in the past 10 years. And it's expected to go down below 30%. And the RIAs and the independent, uh, the hybrid RIAs, their market share is expected to go up. They've already gone up from 16% to 24%. They should be at 30% in less than two years time. So they are gaining market share. The warehouses are losing market share. Uh, and a parallel trend is happening here where banks, the number of branches, this, I was you know, looking at some FDIC numbers, the number of 
uh, branches, bank branches in the US went up from 18,000 to 82,000. Uh, and this data is a little dated, a couple of years old, but in, in, in a 10 year time frame from 2004 through 2015. And when you think about it, all of that, when that kind of growth happens, a lot of fintech investments happen. Okay. Uh, and uh, in the venture space, what happened is it went from 5 billion to 22 billion invested in fintech investments by 2015. And from there on, it has only increased because the 2021 data, I was looking at it the other week, and it came out that every 91% uh, of your banking clients, retail clients have made at least one transaction on mobile phone. Yeah. And uh, you had, uh, they expect 78% of the millennials to be digital banking customers by next year. If these, uh, you know, if these uh, RIAs and hybrid RIAs want to capture that market, uh, they pretty much have to adopt, you know, a digital technology. Yeah, they need an app for lack of a better term, right? Exactly. Yeah. They would need to adopt this. But what we are trying to do is, given our success in these, you know, our core strength is research and in machine learning models and, and models that can generate alpha. So why not take it, uh, offer it in a mass customization model and both to asset managers as well as RIAs. So in the RIA world, what we are working on is trying to build robo-advisors for them so that they can capture these millennials uh, and give them the tools that is required to grow their asset. Right. And, uh, and on the other side, on the asset management side, we are truly giving them uh, tools to build their own uh, custom solutions uh, and they could use our solutions or they could use a hybrid approach where they take yeah. uh, solutions from different managers and bring it together. But they can do that with QDEC. And um, and that's one of the trends that we have captured on. And if if you if there's an investor uh, you know listening to this uh, podcast and mm -hmm. they have a CTA allocation, and if the CTA hasn't doesn't have a fintech uh, product, they should definitely uh, be concerned. I would say because there are two things from a, just from a research standpoint. Actually, we are able to attract far better talent. The, the truth be told, we actually compete with tech companies for talent, not with other financial industries, because majority of the talent who are good are going towards tech companies. And they would rather go to a fintech company than, than a hedge fund, yeah. A hedge fund, a traditional hedge fund, right? So, uh, so from, even from that standpoint, uh, we are equipped very well to generate, I think, far better quality of research. Uh, at least the odds are in our favor by, by this uh, venture that we have. I love it. Um, and any worries on investors of like, Hey, stay in your lane. Are you a tech company or are you a hedge fund? Like, I don't trust that you can do both at the same time, walk and chew gum. Actually, they have actually embraced it. I would say that they, they actually see the need for this. Uh, there are, all of our investors are QDEC clients as well. I, and they have, uh, embraced it in a way that, uh, they see the value prop in it. They see the value of building custom solutions. And, uh, and I don't think, see, this is a SaaS product, really. QDEC is a software as a service product. And uh, what makes it powerful is when you combine it with our data science 
scientists. That's what makes it really powerful, right? Um, and they see value in it. It's a method of delivery, right? It's no different than saying I'm using the internet to deliver a deliver yeah. a service. And uh, if anything, they get far more transparency into any strategy that they build. And and uh, if you have an investor who invests in one of our products, they can have access to QDEC and see intraday PNL. They can see the models that are live on it. Um, you know, so that is great. They get far more transparency from a due diligence standpoint. They know exactly what you know uh, what trades are being made on any given day, which is which is the sort of transparency you would get if you had a managed account, for example, in the old days. Yeah. But that's that's exactly what you get here for them. Any worries if you give them too much? It's like a loaded gun. Give them too much, they'll shoot themselves in the foot. You know, they don't have, well, we are not. Right, giving, of like in terms of uh, I, you're down today, I'm going to panic, right? right? Private equity, I've always joked, has the best gig in the world because they, they're like locked up for four years and they mark to market or they mark yeah. to their own mark. So the investors are just forced to have this lengthy uh, holding sure. period. And I think that's part of a good portion of why they perform so well. Yeah. No, this is more a B2B business. So we are not yeah. going direct to consumer. Um, so for someone like an allocator, you know, like for example, the mutiny fund can have access to it and take a look at it and look at our IPL. That's perfectly yeah. fine. Right. Uh, I don't think uh, any of the team at mutiny would panic like that. So yeah. uh, in the same way, B2B, we work with RIAs that have the similar sentiment. Uh, they would not worry about it uh, because they actually appreciate the tools and they can actually build a robot advisor to attract more clients, which is great. Um, they actually see it in a way uh, we are doing the heavy lift. So we want to be the operating system of uh, the next generation asset managers. All right. Um, just as you were speaking there, your screen, your image makes it feel to me like there's a satellite about to crash on your head. It looks like a satellite with its solar panels uh, expanded there. Um, and I'm so, actually sitting in the International Space Station. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> without a mask. Um, without a mask. That's the only place I can go without a mask. So I decided yeah. to sit there. The, uh, you, think they have to, you think they have to get tested and do the temperature check before they step onto the space station? Probably. That would be odd and funny, but they might. I don't know. You know? So I want to finish up and talk with uh, back to machine learning and AI and just kind of a 30,000 foot view on all of that. Um, so I'll, I don't know where to start, but one of my questions the smarter and smarter the machines get, will, will it converge at some point, right? So if you guys are building all this stuff, if say you have 10 companies just like you, as processing power becomes more and more and you kind of leave them unsupervised more and more, does the end result converge in the future because they're all coming to the same result? You know, this is, um, this is a sort of a, obviously a very hypothetical and futuristic yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, question and will it happen or not right and and this is an opinion obviously i mean it, who knows what would exactly yeah, we, we won't but, hold it to you in 40 years yeah right right <laughs> but you know the thing is seeing the technology space typically their problems tend to have a high signal to noise ratio and you know ac academic machine learning models work great 
But financial data, as we know, there's a lot of noise in there. Uh, the signal to noise ratio is not very high. And it is going to, uh, there are going to be winners and losers, and it's going to be extremely important to have what, I, what I'm saying as AI interpretability. So sometimes in AI models, you don't completely understand what's happening inside them, but then at least you should be able to understand, okay, given a certain scenario, how does it, uh, how does it perform? So you should have enough of those scenarios to understand and feel comfortable that, okay, I know that this works for this case. This has a, there is a strong sort of a objective function here that it was optimized to, and it meets that metric. If you can do that, I think that is more important than exactly what AI technology you're applying, or even if you're applying AI. See, AI is not a must. See, the, the internally, that's why, you know, majority of our programs, we do not call it an ML-based program or anything like that. If you, you've seen our tear sheets and things like that, yeah, it doesn't yeah. say that. The reason is simple, because if, if a simple model can achieve the objective we are looking to achieve, we will take it every single time. Yeah, we are yeah. not applying machine learning for the sake of applying machine learning. Uh, but if it gets complex and there is a place for it, we use it. So we are very careful about when we make that decision to apply or not. And, and, and that's what you'll see because there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of people out there, a lot of managers out there, their starting point, especially who come from a tech background, pure tech background, their starting point is machine learning. Yeah. And then they kind of try to peel the onion and go back yeah, to, to what end, right? What end, right? And, uh, and they quickly realize that, that it's actually the signal to noise ratio in financial markets is far lower than what they would have experienced in any other field that they had applied it to before. And then, and so Robert, how do you, you mentioned before, right? Like it's the math plus the art of it all. So if, if there's this, AI that no one really knows how it works. How do you square that with like needing to kind of know the, the fundamentals behind it or the, not the fundamentals, but like if I don't have a reason for it to work, how do I trust that it works? Yeah, well, I think ultimately we have to remember what we're studying. And to me, we're studying human nature. And unless yeah, you're talking about- in prices. Right? Yeah, exactly, right. And that's, people think, uh, like the stock market is, is simply, it is what it is because that's what the economics is. No, it's not the case. What it, what it is is people's perception of the world, which is very, very different than the pure numbers behind it. So the bottom line is, is to add to this conversation, is that ultimately I believe what we're doing is studying human nature, which in some ways doesn't change over time, but it does, it's, it's unique to each uh, specific situation. But in terms of all the programs converging on one solution, um, anything's possible, but I'm not concerned about that because number one, your assumptions all have to be the same. And we all, a lot of us have different assumptions about the world. Um, I'm certain that a lot of the assumptions I have about the world are vastly different than other people that you interview. Um, and so um, that said, I think you're gonna come up with different responses and Ultimately, human nature is quite often uh, a mystery and um, very difficult to, to uh, detect with, with a lot of clarity. 
And that, and so that's a good point too. Of like, okay, but human nature isn't a clockwork machine that we can map, right? Exactly. So if the machine learning's job is to map that nature, but it's unmappable, how do you square those two things? Or you try um, and get as close as possible to being mappable. Right. I mean, quite often what you'll hear is like, you know, if somebody gets into office, elected office, and you expect them to carry out certain policies, and the exact opposite policies occur um, sometimes, okay? Um, and then sometimes they do carry out the policies that they originally intended. So I guess the point is, is that um, it's not always easy to know what the long-term consequences are of what you're doing and even trying to predict that. So I, I, it's, it's much more uh, unknown than we realize. Is my and I, I kind of think of it also, and AI hasn't quite solved poker yet, although I read a few things that it's getting close. But right at a poker table, you don't know what the guy has. You don't know what he's going to do. It's human nature. But I can assign probabilities to it. Right? right, and then I can set, do my own bet sizing based on the probabilities of what hand he has, or put him on a set of hands. So, do you guys right. kind of view it of that? Of like, we're just yeah. looking at prices. We're going to set a range of possibilities of what could happen, and then set our own bets basically according to those range of possibilities. I, I think that's a good example. But let, let's just say that we did the same thing that we did in the markets. Let's say, just say you have a very good poker player and we analyze how this individual has played in the past five years and we see where the person is faking and so on. Then you have a, a good idea of how that person might work in the future. But if that individual knows that that's what you're doing, yeah, then that person might try to do the exact opposite. Or So the, the point is, is you've always got these other scenarios that can occur that will screw up the whole um, analysis and and speak a little bit, Jag. So, do you guys kind of internally think in terms of probabilities like that? Of yeah, they they do think of probabilities like that, but you know, and 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 Robert mentioned a little earlier about how we continuously hire in research, and we we hired a variety of researchers in different fields and things like that, and watch them build trading models and systems and things like that. But one thing you can always make observe that the trading model represents the person's personality you know it's funny how that happens i know that they code it up and i know how they how yeah. you know the risk management technique or what have you what kind of drawdowns they're willing to take and things like that you will see that reflected in the models you know and and even in even in a machine learning model it's not that much of an autopilot when we apply it to the financial markets it's a, you know, it's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more control than that. You know, there's a lot more of you in it. It's a lot more of you in it or the creator in it. Um, Even so on the I, unsupervised models? Because you have to start it off, start it down the path. Right. right. See, see, the unsupervised models are not used for as much around direct decision making and trading and things like that. Uh, it goes in on the input level, but not really at those critical points. But again, the choice of making that using a model is again made by the person themselves. That's one, because they have some sort of an objective in their mind they want to achieve. I mean, there is, whether they explicitly state it as, as this or not, uh, it's fine. You always have an objective that you want to achieve. Um, that is unstated maybe, but. Yeah, yeah. No, and I always say that. Like you could turn the you know, sophisticated AI on, AI on and it just says buy today and sell in a hundred years, right? 
Like that's my maximum long-term. If you don't tell it, you don't want this much drawdown, this much volatility. Like there needs to be some inputs or you're going to end up way away from where you want to be. That comes back to what I was saying is that you have to have a certain set of assumptions that you, you can't just uh, create models without any kind of framework or assumptions in it. And those assumptions quite often reflect the builder of the model. And so a very simple example would be uh, my psychology was far more um, uh, amenable to short-term trading. There are other people that you've talked to, like say turtle traders, that um, you know their their way of trading was long term. It's not a question of what's right or wrong. Um, what it's can you simply, stick with? Yeah. Exactly right, right. And for me, the long term trading wasn't as appealing, but it doesn't mean it's any better or worse. It simply didn't fit my psychology. So yeah, that's like the we difference. have we have a client who's an ER doctor, and he's like, yeah, I don't make as much money as the other guys, but I'm. When I'm on, I'm on and I'm in there. I don't have any, I don't go home and I'm on call and things. So it's like just a lifestyle choice. I think some of those trading things are the similar, right? Of like, I don't yeah. want positions over the weekend. I want to enjoy my weekend and not have to worry about it. Yeah. And, and you know, I talked about the reminiscence of a stock operator. You know, supposedly, I don't know how true it is, but supposedly Jesse Livermore preferred going short markets versus going long markets because he felt that you got a lot more quick action when you went short versus when you went long. And, um, but, you know, mentally, most people would prefer buying versus selling. Uh, so there's all these different aspects to what you want in a trade. It's not just your, your time frame, but whether you want to go long. And then obviously, there's another very, very important point is that, and, and that's whether you want to be part of the crowd or not. And that's an exceptionally difficult uh, part of trading, which people don't realize. Um, and, and partly, especially in the culture that we're in right now, where if you're not part of the majority, um, it's not necessarily good in the markets. Sometimes it's a big benefit to be part of the minority. Yeah. Okay. And then how do you guys view if you're on the edge of this machine learning and AI, like for overall society, right? Like I think back to the, uh, presidential debates and Andrew Yang, and I was like, he was talking about everyone else is on stage arguing about this coal mine and they're going to try and save 200 jobs. And he's out there saying, Hey, trucking is the biggest employer in like two thirds of the States. Those are all going to be self-driving in 10 to 20 years. Like what, are, how are we replacing all those jobs? So that got a little political. Didn't mean to go there, but just in terms of like, what is the near term and far term future look like for AI and what it could do to our whole society? Um, Any thoughts? <clears throat> I'll let you answer that first, Jagdish, because I have some thoughts too. Yeah. Sure. You know, see, with any uh, technological invention, right? I mean, this is what probably they said when Henry Ford brought the car out when there were buggies, which were popular. And, you know, they probably thought it's going to take away jobs or, or what have you. With any kind of, uh, if anything, we've been able to build on it. We've been able to do more with it, right? I mean, uh, in, in a sense, I feel it's good. Any kind of invention is good because we are, we are able to build bigger things off of it. There may be a lot more things in our future that we don't know yet that we can build, but we don't need to restrict technology from happening. Uh, yeah. and, and that's yeah, what I wasn't necessarily saying. It's a bad thing. I think it right. could be a good thing. You could eliminate, you know, poverty. You could say, Hey, we can build anything we want 
for anybody at super cheap cost, um, right? It kind of fixes right. the world, but then it opens up a whole another slew of issues of like, if people don't have jobs, what do they, what do they do? It's kind of like understanding the, the essence of the atom, nuclear power, and uh, it can either do great things for us or it could destroy us. That's, that's what I see right now. Yeah. And knowing human nature, <laughs> well, let's be optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's Elon Musk and all those guys came out and said, like, this is the biggest future threat, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly um, right. Yes. And, and so I, it sounds, Robert, like you're on the side of Terminator days coming at some point. And Jag, uh, you're, you're more John Connor. We can save the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm more optimistic. You know, I, I, I have a bias towards optimism and that's me. <laughs> But but I'm fascinated, truly fascinated by this technology. I'm naturally curious about this. I'm just fascinated by what, how far we have come. You know, I, I, a simple example is even this. You know, I granted we've been we have been in a pandemic, but some of the positives about the pandemic has also been if you see that technology adoption has gone phenomenally fast. Like, you know, I can tell you in the medical profession, a lot of visits, you don't need to actually go in person. They're doing it virtually. And that could have been done, you know, 10 years ago. We had Skype 15 years ago, but it took an event like this for a change in structure, a change, you know, a shift to happen. Or you can deliver education, you know. uh, Yeah, I think MIT's entire coursework is available online, right? Right. I, personally, I'm sending my daughter to school. I'm, I'm uh, rooting for the schools yeah. to open, but <laughs> but I must say, that, I mean, I'm just saying to places where it's underserved or unreachable or, you know, where we can get, you know, nobody wants to go there, live there and teach those kids. You know what? This is great if they were able to get technology down there. Uh, but things like that, I'm optimistic about. But uh, but yeah, to be determined... I, uh, you know, a classic example about uh, the AI one was, uh, um, I think it was uh, the Cortana, it was it, uh, I think it was Cortana, the Microsoft uh, bot that uh, the assistant, personal assistant. Yeah. So so initially, uh, I think in the first, as soon as they launched it, people were having fun with it and someone put an algorithm to teach it a bunch of different things and uh, it became super inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because yeah. it was an AI algorithm that was learning this, right? So, sure, you know, uh, there, are, there are those risks. Uh, and then they had to kind of put some guardrails around it and saying, okay, <laughs> could we remain within this sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, I guess to, to clarify, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future, but it doesn't mean there won't be drawdowns uh, right. in the future. And uh, so, furthermore... Societal drawdowns, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like a Great Depression, things to that effect, unquestionably. Yeah. It's no different than saying, look, I, I'm i very, very keen on cryptocurrencies. Doesn't mean you just blindly uh, take out a mortgage and, and, and buy Bitcoin right now or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Or, although I think some people have, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other any other big AI thoughts? What's What's the coolest thing that's going to happen next in our lifetime? Self-driving cars are already there. We're going to Mars. Robots doing surgery. I think, uh, I don't know if it's going to be AI. I think it's going to be learning more about ourselves, actually. And uh, the, the, the things that we can actually develop internally. 
uh, like from a meditative standpoint. Mm. That's what I'm hoping for, but we'll see. All right, we're going to end up with some of your favorites we'll do quick. Uh, so you both spent time in Chicago. Favorite Chicago pizza spot? Uh, I like the deep dish, Pizzeria Uno. Oh, yeah. Uno? Uno, yeah. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if they're still there, but India House. I, I like their pizza. I, I like the Indian food there. It was good. India House pizza. Yeah. No, no, I, pizza. I don't think I've ever had their pizza. Yeah. But, uh. No, no, they, they don't. But they had great food there. <laughs> um, and you got. Oh, I forgot to mention. You guys been doing all those uh, COVID charting and whatnot since the beginning of the pandemic. Pandemic. Right. Uh, which we can link to. What are your some of your it's a weird thing to ask, but do you have any favorite stats or charts that have come out of that? Uh, come out of that, um, that is more a question for our data scientists. <laughs> I'll tell you what I, what I like is that the, the fact that Florida and Sweden, which don't have the, uh, all the mandatory uh, restrictions and so on, are doing just as well, if not better than uh, other countries or states alongside of them. So yeah. that would give you an idea of what I think about the whole thing. <laughs> uh, you have a favorite vaccine? Have you guys gotten vaccinated yet? <laughs> no, I'm not going to touch the stuff. Really? You're not yet tested. Um, uh, there's a lot of guinea pigs out there. <laughs> um, favorite Seattle spot for dinner? Any, none, or Bellevue? No, um, is the office is it in Bellevue or in Seattle? It's actually in, it's actually in Bellevue, not Bellevue. Seattle. No, um, you know, I like, um, you know, Robert, you took me, you know, it's been a year since I've gone to restaurants, right? You're like restaurants, what are those? <laughs> yeah, what, what are you talking about? You know, you hit me <laughs> with that one, but but uh, Robert, the Italian place, I've gone a couple of times after you took me to that, uh, uh, yeah. You know, I haven't been to the restaurant myself in a while either. It's, yeah, doing my own. Right. We'll skip that one. And finally, we ask all our guests' favorite Star Wars character. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Joseph Campbell. Do. Say it again. Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. That is a curveball. He's not a character. He's an actor. No, no. He's kind of the, 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 the basics of how Star Wars began. Okay. The whole idea of the myth. Ah, I'm going to yeah. go research that. I like yeah. it. He helped George Lucas with the whole thing. All right. You met him or read about him? What, how'd you learn about him? Uh, no, he's written about myths and how important they are and, and the whole idea behind them. And that's what Star Wars is based on. Yeah, yeah. Um, love it. Jag? No, I, I don't. I'm not into it. So I should read up on this. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I know what Star Wars is, but I don't have a favorite character. Yeah. I How like about R two D two? He's kind of a. Uh, he's or, or 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 Darth Vader's emotions on his face. Those are good. <laughs> uh, all right, guys, it's been fun. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Um, we'll put in the show notes where to find out more about all your programs and QDEC and all the other good stuff.
You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.